are listening to the podcast of the White Church at the Elk River YMCA in Minnesota. Our mission is to seek Jesus, connect together, and share his love. Ezra comes to Jerusalem. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Meriath, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Bukai, the son of Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed in the laws of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Son of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. All right. Thank you, Gail. Well done. Well, I hope you had some good conversation around the table about things that you enjoy learning about, past or present. I don't know about you, but I sometimes struggled in school. I loved learning, but struggled with the school part. I don't know if that resonates with any of you. And I remember very specifically going into a presentation in 10th grade. It was an elective, and I don't know how in the world I ended up in that class. It was on human anatomy. And I remember I had to present on the spine. And I also remember being quite underprepared for the presentation. So it's the night before the big presentation, semester project, and I've got to spice up this presentation somehow. And so I decided to make the whole class homemade chili. And so Mr. Peter Meyer's class, it's my turn to present, and I wheel in a whole cart of homemade chili. And so as I'm presenting, winging it, about the spine, I'm serving chili to the class. And Mr. Peter Meyer had me stay after, and he said, first of all, don't ever do that again. (laughs) Second of all, the chili was outstanding. Somehow I made it through, and I stand before you today. I'm a fellow learner, just struggling to keep up and enjoy coming every Sunday to sit under the Lord's Word together with you. And uh, today we land in Ezra chapter 7, and it's our last week in the book of Ezra, but it's not our last week in this message series. Ezra has a companion book of the Bible that comes right after it called Nehemiah, and that's where we're going to go next week. So that will be our month of February. And what connects these books, other than their historic setting, is that they're both really about building, rebuilding physical structures like the temple and the city walls, where we'll go in Nehemiah, 
but they're also about rebuilding people. Earlier in the Old Testament, the people of God had lost themselves. Now, God hadn't lost them. They had lost themselves. They'd wandered away from their relationship with Him. They'd abandoned Him for false gods and idols, and and they just decided to live however they wanted to, and, and that turned into a mess. And by the way, when we read in these Old Testament books about Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, it's not meant to be irrelevant or some kind of dry history lesson that's disconnected to our daily life. When we read these stories, what we're seeing is a mirror that looks a whole lot like ourselves. And at this part of the story, the people had lost who they were as God's people. And some of us here know exactly what it feels like to be completely and utterly lost. To have lost ourselves. To be far from God and living on our own. And and some of us might even feel that way now. And we want you to know as you come into this space uh, on a Sunday morning that the heartbeat of this church community has always been to be a safe haven for people to find themselves again. Uh, To get to know God and to have a relationship with Him. Our doors are wide open for the love of Jesus to be shared with people no matter where you're coming from. Israel's story is really a reflection of our story. And what happened when they lost themselves is that they fell apart spiritually. And so picture with me that their spiritual life, the interior of the people, looked a whole lot like a broken down building. And during this time in their history, the Babylonians came and they took over Israel. They swept in from the east and they conquered Jerusalem. They hauled away many of the people to Babylon and Jerusalem was left in ruins. So there's books of the Bible like Jeremiah, Lamentations, Habakkuk that tell that story. And it stayed that way for 70 years. Then we get to the book of Ezra. After 70 years of exile in Babylon, and there's this significant shift on the geopolitical landscape where Babylon, the superpower, has now fallen to the Persians. And there's a new empire in town. The Persian king is a guy named Cyrus. And God turns Cyrus's heart toward his people. And that's where the book of Ezra starts out. And Cyrus releases God's people back to Jerusalem from Babylon so that they can rebuild. Chapters 1 to 6 of Ezra are about those early years of rebuilding. And Megan showed us some of those highlights last week. The altar was rebuilt and sacrifices. That system of worship in the Old Testament started again. The temple was rebuilt and dedicated. And the Passover feast, their big, big holiday, was finally celebrated again. That's where chapter 6 leaves off. And then we have 57 years this gap between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7 where we are today. And that's why verse 1 of chapter 7, we'll start to follow this text on the screen, says, after these things. Heinz 57, 57 years have gone by. The buildings have been rebuilt. Everything is up and running again. But guess what's still waiting in the wings? All the apparatus is working, but the spiritual life of the people has somehow stalled out. They've got their temple, they've got their altar, they've got their church going, happening again, the religious routines, but their interior life is still in ruins. The spiritual life of the people is calling out for attention, and that's where Ezra comes in. 
And believe it or not, the whole book is named after him, but we don't actually meet Ezra until right here in chapter 7. Chapters 1 to 6 is the first waves of people who are returning. And 57 plus years later, we finally get to Ezra. He comes along and he's born to the Israelites who are still living in Babylon. And that's this kind of both and that we remember. There's waves of people heading back in chapters 1 through 6, but not everybody. They'd been in Babylon for 70 years, and some of these families had settled in quite well. And Cyrus just had given them the option. Well, if you want to go back, you can. So Ezra's family had been one that had stayed in Babylon. Now, 57 years after chapter 6 has ended, it's a different day. So the king of Persia is now a guy named Artaxerxes. And the key Israelite character is this guy named Ezra. I was reading an article just this week about obscure baby names, biblical baby names being trendy, apparently. And I've actually kind of noticed that. I don't know if you have. So, you know, maybe a a generation or two ago we were seeing Davids and Pauls and, and those kinds of biblical names, Marks and so on. And now we're seeing baby boys being named things like Obadiah and Silas and Hezekiah. And the girl names that we're seeing pop up are Eve and Delilah and Hadassah. That's fascinating. And I say if obscure baby names are coming back, then we should put Ezra on the list. So if you are in that phase of life, you know, just add it to your list of possibilities. Ezra. His name is a short form of the name Azariah, which we see in his family line. And so Azariah, or Ezra, means the Lord has helped. I love that. The Lord has helped. So what we're seeing in chapter 7 is this guy whose education and his credentials are through the roof, but his name communicates absolute dependence on God. Ezra. The Lord has helped. This past week, my kids turned in their school art projects for the the annual art fair. And so we had some string art, and we had a pair of clay penguins, and a painting of a shark attack. We have have two girls and one boy, just in case you're wondering who did the shark attack. And I was tucking in one of my daughters that night. They turned in their projects that day, and uh, she lets out just this big end-of-the-day kind of stressful sigh, you know. Uh, and, And she says, Dad, I'm aiming for first or second place, just not a participation ribbon. The dreaded participation ribbon. But I could just see the the pressure that she was putting on herself uh, with this art project that she's got to be the best and she's got to win it and it looked very familiar to me to this kid that I knew in the 80s and 90s. Ezra's name flies in the face of these kinds of things. His name says it is not to my credit. It's not something I've achieved or accomplished on my own. It's not because I was good enough or strong enough or smart enough. No, the Lord has helped. That's what Ezra's name communicates. It's grace. An absolute dependence on God, on His hand and on His Word. And today I want to show you just briefly how we see that in the story. Some of the passage we already covered just by way of introduction, but we'll put it up here again. Verse 1, after these things, during the reign of 
Artaxerxes, king of Persia, that part we covered. And then comes this whole slew of difficult names. Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah. It carries on for several verses, and I picked the, I don't know what you call that. I call that the deer in headlights emoji. (laughs) And we ask ourselves, why does the Bible do this to us? It's cruel and unusual punishment. These genealogies are hard to pronounce. They tend to put us to sleep. What are they there for? Well, first, they're there because this is a book that records history, and the genealogies verify history and match things to real time and real people in real places. And secondly, and very specific now to Ezra, this genealogy shows that Ezra was a duly appointed priest. And if you were Jewish and you were living in this time, that would have been very important you. That this was Ezra's job. He was of the tribe of Levi, and not only that, but he came from the high priestly line of Aaron. And that's where it lands then in verse 5. The son of Aaron, the chief priest, verse 6, this Ezra came up from Babylon. So Ezra was a priest, and then we also find out he was a scribe. A scribe. It says he was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses. And it says there literally, if we were reading the Hebrew words, that he was a skilled scribe. I don't know what you picture when you think of scribe. I just think of somebody furiously writing away. It meant more than writing and record-keeping. A scribe was someone who was an expert in the first five books of the Bible, the law of Moses. And we know them as Genesis through Deuteronomy. That was the law of Moses. And a scribe knew how to read it, how to interpret it, and how to teach it. That was Ezra. But even more, the text says, it could have just said he was a scribe, but it says he was especially skilled at it. He was wise and ready. He was a teacher of the highest ability. And yet, look where the credit goes for everything that he taught. It says he was a teacher well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given That makes this book, this book that we stock in your centerpiece, unlike any other book on the face of the earth. That's what makes this book different, that it was given to us by God. And maybe we remember, if you were here this fall, we were studying the books of Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy. This line that we read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is God-breathed. Theopanustos. It's God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Apostle Paul wrote those lines in 2 Timothy, but it sounds to me a whole lot like Ezra. He knew that Scripture was God-breathed. He knew that God had written this book for us. That he had inspired human authors in their various personalities and writing styles and genres to record his written word for us. And he did this so that we could get to know God. The equation is that simple. That in this book that God wrote for us, we can get to know him. If we will spend some time here and that will make all the difference in our life as it did in Ezra's. We've been limping along at our house with a broken dishwasher. A few weeks ago, possibly months ago, 
I put a plate in the top rack, slammed it home, and it was too tall, and so it took out this spinny thing at the top of the dishwasher. I brought it along to show you. (laughs) And it's so small, it's so unassuming, but I tell you what, for weeks, possibly months, the top rack of the dishwasher has not looked the same. I've had this on my honeydew list for quite some time. In fact, it's kind of circled back up to the top, and then it drops down for a while. And so this week, I was finally going to tend to it. You know, after how long I've been... I started to carry this around as a reminder, so the staff may have seen it sitting on my desk, or it was in my laptop bag, or it was sitting in my truck. And so I finally got down to business, and I went to the hardware store and talked to the dishwasher folks. Then they told me to call the manufacturer, which sounded like a great time. So I put that off a few more days and then got on the phone with them this week. So I rolled up my sleeves and I grabbed the manual and I grabbed that phone number of Whirlpool, the manufacturer. And I took out the manual and I pulled up some YouTube videos, some how-to fix-it guides. And and I noticed too that this part actually has a serial number on it. And I read through and found out it's not called the spinny thing. It's called the upper arm assembly. And after, I don't know, an hour or two of time, I figured out how to fix it. And I can tell you it costs $52.11 to fix this little thing. I now know way more about a dishwasher than I ever cared to know. And how did that happen? I mean, it's not rocket science. I just spent some time there. I learned about it. And really, it wasn't even that hard. It wasn't as hard as I thought, and neither is getting to know God's Word. You know, the Bible can look intimidating. It's a big book. It's thick. It's got these hard-to-pronounce names. There are parts that are maybe tricky to understand, or maybe you say, well, I'm not a big reader, or I didn't grow up in a family where we ever read the Bible. But here is the simple fact of the matter, that God wrote this book for you to get to know Him. He wants to be known by you who he made, his beloved creation. He wants you to know him and to approach him. And so that's why he chose to express himself in human words and language so that you could get to know him. For you to open up this book and just to spend some time there. And you know, it occurred to me as I carted this thing around for how many weeks that you can own a Bible your whole life and not actually ever get to know it. You can carry around the very best of intentions like I carried around this little spinny thing. But if you don't actually spend time in this book, it will hinder you in getting to know God. Ezra was a guy who just spent time here. He really did. He was not leaning on his family line, riding on anybody's coattails. He just spent some time in this book and he got to know God. All credentials aside, Ezra got into this book and he got to know the one who gave it to us. And in this passage, we see the implicit connection between two things. We see Ezra spending time in God's word and we see the hand of God upon his life. These two things are emphasized in this passage. So when the time comes for Ezra to pack up and leave Babylon, what does it say? The second half of verse 6. Let's pick up the text again. The king had granted him everything he asked for, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. 
Now, is it weird that a foreign king would be emptying his treasury and bending over backwards to supply exiled subjects with everything that they needed to leave and rebuild their own nation? I think that's a little weird. But the hand of God is what did this. It was upon Ezra's life, and so he had favor, and the king rubber-stamped everything that came across his desk. And this was not just a small little crew of travelers. We read the description in verse 7. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Sounds to me a bit like a traveling circus when you try to imagine this. Musicians and gatekeepers, you know, quite the party. And the journey back to Jerusalem was a really long road trip. It was anything but easy. Megan shared some more details about it last week, that the route was 900 miles long and would have taken four months to complete. And it was dangerous because we know at this time there had been an uprising in Egypt and so the region was very unstable. You got a bunch of priests and musicians and gatekeepers out there. And I think they would have been pretty vulnerable to attack. You know, when I think back to my seminary days, and I think about the guys in my class, really nice guys, but I don't know how we would have done in a street fight. So there they are, traveling four months, 900 miles. And what is it that made the difference for Ezra and this band of travelers? Was it their brains? It certainly wasn't their brawn. It was the hand of God upon them. And watch for this again. We already read it once, but the end of verse 9, watch for this. He, Ezra, had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. That is the second time in four verses that we have seen that. The hand of God was on him. That is the decisive factor. It wasn't Ezra's smarts or his strength. It was the gracious favor of the Lord. That's why the king emptied his wallet. And that's why Ezra was kept safe across 900 miles on the road. And I think a great prayer for you and I to consider this week and from here on out would be to simply ask God for His hand to rest upon our life. Or to pray that over your children or your grandchildren or your spouse or a friend. When we pray, I find we can take our cues from Scripture. It is great just to pick up this book and be able to pray these words. And this seems to be a lesson from Ezra's story. That we don't earn God's favor but we can ask Him for it. We can ask Him for it. For God in His grace to place His hand upon our lives, for His favor and His blessing to rest upon us. That's a good prayer. And I encourage you to do that this week. Now sometimes too as we gather together and we're just trying to find our way and find ourselves again and, and learn about relationship with God. You know, how do we talk with God? Prayer can be intimidating. You know, Ashley prays, and, and you might think, boy, I, I don't know if I could pray like that. I, I don't know how that works. But we can pick up this book, and we take our cues from here, and you can pray a one-sentence prayer this week. Lord, would your hand rest upon my life? That's a good prayer. 
And as you follow up that prayer this week, as you think about it and you pray it, you might want to just jot down a few notes about then where you see that happening this week in your life. Where do you see glimpses of God's favor showing up? God, may your gracious hand be upon me. May it be upon my children, my spouse. May it be upon my friend. That's the hand of God. And it is paired up with this other recurring theme in this passage, and that is the Word of God. We talked about it earlier. I just want to show you how it keeps showing up in the text. And this is where we finish in verse 10. The closing verse takes us back to the Word of God one more time. And here's what it says. For, and by the way, what does for mean? It's not talking about your golf swing. For, in this instance, means because. So it's a connecting word. You see that? It's connecting it to what we just read and what came just before it. The gracious hand of his God was on him. For, they're connected, Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. God's hand and his word. You see the connection? We see that Ezra devoted himself to three things that I've highlighted. The study, observance, and teaching of God's law. Let's put it in our own terms. He studied it, he lived it, and he shared it. That was Ezra's pattern. This order of things is not to be missed in the text. Derek Kidner, an Ezra scholar, wrote about this, and he says, what he taught he had first lived... And what he lived, he had first made sure of in the Scriptures. That's why we see this progression. He studied it. He was learning things. Then he lived it. And then he remembered to pass it on. And you and I get to follow that exact pattern. To study it, live it, and share it. And that is a great model that we find in the book of Ezra. One of the things that we're learning is how to do this together by reading the New Testament and the Psalms this year. And so we have invited everybody who's connected to our church family to do Project 51. It looks like this. And we have hard copies at the connections table for you to pick up. It's free. We have online versions that we've posted to social media. They're free. And we just want you, even if somebody shows up in September, or, may, or maybe they miss a few months, you can always just start fresh today. And so you could pick up Project 51 and get started with us. It just takes a few minutes a day. It invites us into this pattern in God's Word where we study it, live it, and pass it on. That is the Ezra way, and it is that simple. One of the most successful series in publishing that Encyclopedia Britannica ever set their minds to was called Great Books of the Western World. So Encyclopedia Britannica set out this volume. It was published in 1952, and it had 54 volumes in it. Any of you still own one of those giant encyclopedia sets? I don't know what's happening to them now in the digital age, but there it was, one of the great feats of modern publishing. Two of the first volumes, there's 54 volumes in all, were filled with essays by topic. All the major areas of learning and of study were included, things like law, ethics, philosophy, science, reason, art, mathematics, and so on. 
517 essays, including an essay about God. That was the heading, God, essay. The editor-in-chief for this project was the famed philosopher and educator Mortimer Adler. And sometime in the years after its publication, they actually reduced more volumes and reproduced it in the 90s. Larry King, you remember Larry King Live? Larry King has Mortimer Adler onto his talk show. And Larry King says this to Adler in the TV interview. He says, Mr. Adler, I was looking through the great books of the Western world to which you were the editor-in-chief. Can you tell me why? The longest essay is on God. Larry King, by the way, is agnostic and has been married eight times. Adler, who was Jewish his entire life until late in his years, received Christ as Savior, did not hesitate. You know what he said to him? He said, Larry, it's very simple. And of all we've talked about today, I just want you to hear how simple this is. God wants to be known. Here's what he says. Larry, it's very simple. More consequences for your life follow from that one issue than any other issue you can think of. Whether you believe or disbelieve in God has everything to do with how you live, why you live, how you orchestrate your life, and what your values are. I don't know what brings you here on Sunday mornings. Probably a number of things. But at the top of that list, we just come here to learn about God. This is a place of community. It's a place of belonging where you will be loved and cared for. And it is ultimately a place where we come to learn about God. And what we learn about Him shapes everything else in our life so when we open this book together week after week, when this is our pattern, what we're doing is we're saying, God, will you please teach me about who you are? And will your hand please rest upon my life? Everything else in your life will follow when you ask God those kinds of questions. When you come to sit at his feet, and learn from his word and commit your path to following him. Can I pray for us, for me and for you to that end? Let's bow our heads. Lord, you look right into the hearts and minds of every single one of us here. And you know, Lord, where we're at in relationship with you, the things that we wrestle with, the things that are on our mind right now, maybe what this week stands before us. And Lord, I, I think many of us find life is, is hard to do sometimes. It is complicated and messy, and if it's not what's happening in our lives, it's the world around us, Lord, just seems a fire. And so, Lord, this morning we come before you in, in light of your word and we just ask, Lord, that you would teach us about who you are. We come as learners. We come humbly 
just seeking the grace of your hand, Lord. And I pray that we would see it and feel it and experience it this week. That you, Lord, would show up in a mighty way in our lives. And we ask you that, Lord, boldly, not because we've earned it, but because of the cross, because Jesus has made a way for us to be in relationship with you. Lord, we thank you for your love and grace poured out on us. And we ask for the blessing of your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Y Church Podcast. For more information about the Y Church, check us out online at thewychurch.org.